modes of thought in Interran literature. Second year classics, Harvard University. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thanks to our hosts, the Archaeological Literature Foundation and Duke University's Berlin campus, and the SRH Hochschule Berlin for having this <laughs> this cavalcade of tweed descend on its prestigious campus. Today, I'd like to present some recent findings from the site known as Antera Prime A a.k.a. Dark City. Most of you know that this has become a bit of an area of focus for me, um, and that's because it's simply the most fascinating culture and the most ancient we've ever encountered. I'll say this, in, in all science and history, we deal with the conditional, right? The word if. It's our bread and butter. What if Hannibal failed? in his campaign? What if the gun was created in Asia instead of the West? These thought experiments lead us to new truths every single day, and, and some of us even get paid for it. <laughs> so if you're thinking that the evidence of Antara is too scant to invest any time or work in, or that Antara is a fiction, I believe there's a value in the mind frame of the conditional. So, okay, that's my caveat. Take it or leave it. Today, I want to suggest a connection between the culture of Antara and the Epic of Gilgamesh. Now, as we all know, the Epic of Gilgamesh, until recently, right, was the oldest written epic in human history. The notion that there's a through line from Antaran society to Gilgamesh is, well, it's outrageous. And I expect there will be some discussion and dissent in the community of archaeological literature, but that's our job. We interpret ancient texts that are so far removed from their original context, it's like looking at one single spring from a watch and trying to see the rest of the Rolex or in my case, Timex, or Swatch, what have you. We can guess, we can build likely solutions, but we cannot know. One thing I've discussed about Antara in the past is how the Second Empire had a comfort and a facility with the unknown that seems to have brought them to incredible heights very quickly. The unknown is our friend too, as it was theirs, so. Welcome to the unknown. The Epic of Gilgamesh. <clears throat> Discovered in the ruins of the library of Ashurbanipal in Nineveh by Austin Henry Laird in the 1850s, the cuneiform tablets were then brought to the British Museum where they languished for a couple of decades. 
They were ultimately deciphered and the text was assembled by George Smith, one of my personal heroes. I'm probably not the only person in this room who thinks George Smith was a badass. Okay, later additions were made to the text from the Babylonian and Sumerian versions, which proved that this story or, or saga stayed relevant for a period of over 2,000 years before it fell into obscurity. The Bible is comparable in terms of its longevity as a text. Um, some of the Chinese classics come close, but that's about it. It's like the longest running movie in human history. Imagine they're still playing Star Wars in the theater 2,000 years from now. So the part of the Gilgamesh epic that I'm interested in today is the last phase in the saga, Gilgamesh's journey to discover the secret of immortality, right? He goes to find Utnapishtim, who is the one man who survived the flood and has since become immortal. Quote, then Gilgamesh raised a punting pole and drew the boat to shore. Utnapishtim spoke to Gilgamesh saying, Gilgamesh, you came here exhausted and worn out. What can I give you so you can return to your land? I will disclose to you a thing that is hidden, Gilgamesh. I will tell you. There is a plant like a box thorn whose thorns will prick your hand like a rose. If your hands reach that plant, you will become a young man again. Hearing this, Gilgamesh opened a conduit to the Apsu and attached heavy stones to his feet. They dragged him down to the Apsu. They pulled him. He took the plant, though it pricked his hand, and cut the heavy stones from his feet, letting the waves throw him onto its shores. Gilgamesh spoke to Urshanabi, the ferryman, saying, Urshanabi, this plant is a plant against decay by which a man can attain his survival. I will bring it to Uruk Haven and have an old man eat the plant to test it. The plant's name is the old man becomes a young man. Then I will eat it and return to the condition of my youth." End quote. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about what made Gilgamesh suddenly decide to go on this quest to meet Utnapishtim. I don't think I'm off base in suggesting that the common theory is that this was the result of the death of Enkidu, his best friend and his lifelong companion, possibly his lover, the, the only person who could check him and challenge him. And the loss, the grief over Enkidu's death brought an awareness of Gilgamesh's own mortality to the forefront of his mind. I don't love this theory. It's not that it doesn't make sense. It does have a clunky sort of logic to it. But imagine you've lost someone you treasure, someone who makes the whole world make sense to you. Would you suddenly think about your own death? I don't think so. You might think about your pain. You might think about the afterlife where your friend has gone, if it's good or bad. But I, I just can't imagine looking at my best friend's corpse and saying, well, 
that sucks. I don't want that to happen to me. Thank you very much. There are linguistic reasons as well as metaphorical ones to think that Enkidu actually remained with Gilgamesh in the form of his axe and his anger. That seems like a rational reaction to the grief that we all know from the Kubler-Ross cycle, right? So it seems reasonable that motivated by rage, Gilgamesh set out to fuck with death. That's my theory. And the person he needs to see to accomplish this is Utnapishtim, the one man who survived the flood. Since we're at a conference of classicists and archaeoliterati, I think it's safe to say we all know how ubiquitous the flood myth is. It's everywhere, right? Asia, steppes, Africa, South America, Java. And usually there was a specific survivor, Noah, right? Uh, in the Incan flood, Viracocha leaves two survivors, a man and a woman, to repopulate the world. In Hopi mythology, the spider grandmother told as many kind people as she could to get into reed boats. And this is how they survived the flood, using islands as stepping stones until they wound up in the southwest of North America. And this is the question I'm looking at. Is Utnapishtim the connecting thread between the ruins of Antara and the cultures of Sumeria and Babylon? We won't be working in absolutes today. Archaeology is a field of theories, as we all know. With the advent of the discovery of Antara, we're talking about reaching back into the unknown in extra 70,000 years. So there's a lot that we can't pin down, but it seems possible. Firstly, there are the stories of the sea people. These are the various stories of people coming on ships into the Mediterranean and crushing all the advanced civilizations of the second millennium BCE, concurrent with what we call the Bronze Age collapse. The sea people are remarked upon in Anatolia, Syria, Canaan, and Cyprus, all over as the chief preceding event that led to the Bronze Age collapse, right? As we know, the collapse created an information black hole we've never really been able to penetrate. Why did so many cultures simply cease to exist all at the same time? Did they overuse their resources? Did the political structures become untenable to the societies? Did a foreign invading force simply come along and wipe them out and then vanish without leaving any evidence of having been there? All three of these explanations have pretty massive problems, so for now, at least, it remains a mystery. What doesn't seem mysterious to me anymore is that there is an essential connection between Antara and Sumeria. The tale of Utnapishtim brings to light a direct line between the flood myths that are ubiquitous in the second millennium BCE societies and this earlier civilization even though it was thousands of miles away. And the reason is Boxthorn. Yes, Boxthorn. Lyceum is the Latin name. It's just a plant, not too special. It has variants all over the globe. But the variant with the thorns, that's exclusive to the islands of the Pacific. Indonesia, Java, Papit, etc. 
Now, this matters. The species and genus of this plant, and I'm not an archaeobiologist, but those I've consulted with, including the late Dr. Yoli Chen, agree that the type of box thorn mentioned by Utnapishtim was likely from that area of the world, based on the description in the original Sumerian and again in the Akkadian version. So, how did a plant that only existed at that time over 6,000 miles away become the plant that Gilgamesh needed to retrieve in order to live forever? It's not possible. Unless someone had traveled there and made it back, a pretty unlikely feat in 2000 BCE, more likely, some society that was native to the same region as the box thorn had imbued it with cultural significance and those stories lived on in a contiguous oral tradition all the way until the sea people carried their stories with them on their raids that led to the Bronze Age collapse. There are theories about the collapse, we've all debated them. Um, the invasion theory, the plague theory, the famine theory, the migration theory, my personal favorite, which postulates that some event in Eastern Europe caused mass migration south and west with all the ensuing conflicts that that would cause. Um, one theory, though, that no one is really discussing, and that's the snake theory. Uh, as Gilgamesh is journeying home with the box thorn plant, the epic continues. Quote, at 20 leagues, they broke for some food. At 30 leagues, they stopped for the night. Seeing a spring and how cool its waters were, Gilgamesh went down and was bathing in the water. A snake smelled the fragrance of the plant, silently came up and carried off the plant. While going back, it sloughed off its casing." End quote. The snake stole the plant, the youth giving key to immortality, right? In terms of mythological significance, this is a field day, and uh, if anyone wants to grab a drink after this and talk about the snake, I'm buying. But in terms of archaeolinguistics, what I see here is that the cultural significance of the plant its mythos, its ritualistic value, was stolen or overtaken by a primal force, either an outside group or some culturally rarefied caste, potentially. In my estimation, this suggests the end of Antara as we found it, a homogeneous culture in the region of the Pacific, and the beginning of a diaspora that took its values, its rituals, its technology, and even its languages, and spread them across the globe from east to west for the next 55 to 60,000 years. Okay, thank you for listening to this new theory. I hope you find it as interesting and exciting as I do. I truly believe that there's a through line from Antara to the ancient cultures of Mesopotamia and that those came in a wave we know now as the Sea People leading to the Bronze Age collapse.
Thank you very much for your time today. And like I said, if anyone wants to talk about Intera or the snake situation, I'll be at the hotel bar. Modes of Thought in Interran Literature. This podcast is made possible by Harbridge University, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Peeler Prize in Archaeological Literature, and the Harbridge Family Trust, with an in-kind donation and production assistance from Wolf at the Door Studios. For more information and a reading list, please visit modesofthoughtpodcast.com. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Hi, folks. Let me see if I can sum up Midnight Burger in about 25 seconds. Really, Big Monster? Zero irony. Pardon me, Gloria. Might my husband and I have a word? The radio is talking to me. So this is how it ends. Eaten by wolves in space. There's a pocket dimension in the deep freeze. This is the stupidest dystopia we've ever been to. What the hell is that? Because you're having a cigarette? In 415 million BC? Where are we? Space? Can you narrow that down? The bad part? Ava. Yeah, that didn't work at all. At the nexus of all things, there is a diner. Look for Midnight Burger on your favorite podcasting app or just go to weopenat6.com.